What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest this morning is Janet Duarte Bell. Janet Duarte Bell is a communication strategist and management consultant with a multimedia background, as well as experience in policy advocacy, strategic planning, fund development, media training, and education. She's a social justice advocate, activist, executive coach, and motivational speaker with a doctorate in leadership and change from Antioch University. She is the author of Carving Out a Humanity, Race, Rights, and Redemption. Her book that we are discussing today is Blackbird Singing, Inspiration. Black Women's Speeches from the Civil War to the 21st Century. Janet, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so pleased that you've invited me. Thank you for having me. Oh, listen, when the book came in the mail, I, like immediately to Jesse, and Jesse was already on it. He was like, yeah, I know. Um, re- we were really excited to have you on and have this conversation. Janet, I want to start with a little bit about you, though. You are many, many things, as I just said in your bio. Um Talk about yourself and talk about your work as an activist and how that dovetailed with your work as a communicator. I'm asking because I, too, was a communicator and and, and and an organizer and um, would just love to hear what that trajectory for you was like. Yes. And I know and I and I know that we have certain kinds of things in common, uh, domestic issues. My mother was a household worker, a domestic worker. She didn't deal directly with domestic violence. But that's but I have um, I actually one of my friends called it um, a downward mobility. I left a TV producing job to work for the National Committee on Household Employment to organize so that household workers would be under the federal minimum wage, and we won that fight. Uh, that was in this. That was in the seventies. But my history is such. My life's work really is dedicated to my mother, who really started me out on a life of activism and education. I started, I was born in 1946, and it's important to say that because that puts me, puts the context for my experience. That's why my bio is so long, (laughs) because I've been working on all of the major social justice issues since I was six years old. My mother had me distributing pamphlets for a presidential election. Her candidate, uh, Adlai Stevenson, did not win. But uh, she, being born in rural Arkansas, was not able to go to high school because the nearest high school for Black children was 100 miles away in Little Rock, Arkansas. But she became absolutely devoted to the idea that that liberation started with education. And she was self-educated. She educated us. And she is the inspiration for all I do. So from that experience from six years old, my mother was also very involved in community. Uh, She she did not have formal titles, as many of the people did not have formal titles that I've written about in my my books, either in uh, Lighting the Fires of Freedom or this word, Black Blackbird singing that that alludes to some people who have titles and who did not, but who really were very community oriented, who really were community organizers before that term was uh, coined, but who did, as Mary Church Terrell said, lifted as they climbed. So I was involved in, I didn't realize this till many years later how significant it was, but my mom, I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania, and 
there was a choice between going to the city schools or the county schools. And mom said, well, which schools are better? They said the county schools. So that was the end of that. Uh, and so she sent my siblings and me to the county schools. And my brother, five years older than I, really integrated the county schools. It was years later that when I understood the significance of that. And so for many years, we were among the very, very few black children in the public school system in the, in the county schools. And so what happened with that is that there were too few of us to make special arrangements. So we got the same quality education as everyone else did. I'm a great uh, advocate and proponent of public school education. It needs to be fair. So I started with that. I graduated in 1964. I got, I was involved in the civil rights movement, worked in the deep South and South side, Virginia and Tennessee, a little bit in Mississippi, a little bit in Alabama and a little bit in Georgia. But basically I was working in Virginia and Tennessee, very involved in the anti-war movement, peace movement, I like I like to call it. And in, in later years, the um, LGBTQ movement, you know, that it, it's just, to me, it's all part of that same trajectory of human rights and knowing that the, the worth of each individual. So that's, that's really my background and my communications really speaks to that. The communications that I have done, uh, my uh, first major TV job was at the a CBS affiliate in Washington, D.C. And we produced one of the first daily live, one hour a day, very little staff, television programs, a, a public affairs program on black affairs called Harambe. And that was a, a, such a monumental experience. It was that position that I left to go work for the National Committee on Household Employment, much to the horror of my friends who are in media. But I said, my life's work has been communicating. And it did not necessarily mean that I had to have a job at a at a television station or radio station. Later, I became I went to National Public Radio. And I have to admit, every now and then, every little now and then, as we say, I miss being in the studio. Bet you do. There are a couple of threads on there that I want to tug. Jenna, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about the experience of being the only Black kids in a white school. Um, was it an easy ride? Were there obstacles? What was that like? Most of the time, it was very good. And I have to give credit for my classmates and for the people who worked in the cafeteria who every everyone else was white so let me paint the picture a little bit more out of maybe it was a consolidated school so maybe out of 1200 students in in sixth grades there were there were no more than six black students or so at a time when i graduated i was one of two black girls in my graduating class but the challenge and the the good thing about it is, is that the, I mean, you, my, my mother always said things don't have or don't always happen for the best, but you make the best of what happened is that I knew that I could compete with anybody at any level. So the whole race thing has never intimidated me. I knew I was good as everybody else. And so uh, that, that has been 
a, a lifelong gift to me. But the challenges were, I, I, I talked to someone recently, a friend of mine who now works for the, um, uh, uh, the I'm trying to think of the uh, racial justice organization, a white friend. And we, she came to one of my book readings a few years ago, and I had not seen her since high school. And she said that she remembered an incident, but of course I remembered that in class one time, this, the teacher said to us, this was maybe sixth grade, said, um, okay, let's talk about your ethnic background. And by that, they meant white ethnics. So they said, well, who has, who's part Scotch or so? Uh, I raised my hand. Who's part Irish? I raised my hand because that's part of the thing. You know, we didn't we didn't have a choice in terms of uh, how we were bred and how you know mo many people, including a lot of white people, who's who don't necessarily acknowledge it. You have a lot of racial, whatever we describe as race, the social construct in your background, and the teacher was furious and that I would that I would claim this in this. Uh, in this class, and she kept me after class. The student, my my friend, I hadn't who I hadn't seen for decades, remembers that, and she said, "I was wondering why." She said, "You're a good student. You're well behaved. Why the teacher kept you out of class?" And she said, "Years ago, years later, she said, oh, because Janet is colored.' That was the term then, and so she then devoted her life." to social justice activism. I said, so you never know the kind of impact that you have on people, uh, that, that certain incidents have on people. And, and it's just really, uh, it was just really heartwarming. And she drove, I was speaking in Atlanta, Georgia. She had a friend and they drove like two hours each way just to come to my book reading. And she wanted to tell me that 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 was a transformative experience for her. And I said, well, what can I say? <laughs> That's wonderful. The second uh, thread that I want to tug on, Janet, is you, you made a really powerful statement. Liberation starts with education. And, you know, we are in a country where for decades now, um, we have watched the defunding, the dysfunction, the mass charterization of our public school system and the demographic that it primarily impacts, I used to do uh, education reform, is Black children. So I would just like you to spend a moment talking uh, about that, like in, in, in versus when you were in school and your mom made that statement compared to the experience of Black children across this country today. Yes. Well, you know, the public school system really became more sophisticated because of the integration of the people who are not born to the manner born, because remember, people used to be educated at home, rich white folks, or and not so rich white folks. And one of the incidents that um, I can recall, we were working in Southside, Virginia, doing voter registration, and that's the place, Prince Edwards County, where when Brown v. Board of Education, this, the landmark Supreme Court decision came down, the, the powers that be at that point, closed the public schools for five years rather than integrate them. What that meant was, is that they took the money that was should have been allocated to public school education for all children. They siphoned it to white academies. And I say to people, hmm, is any of that sounding familiar right now? 
And what, and the, because they knew that education is power. And the people I, I've written about or whose, uh, and whose stories I've, I've had the privilege to talk about know that education is power. Knowledge is power. Sometimes you're unable to get a formal education beyond a certain point, like my mom who only went to eighth grade, but everyone who met her thought she had to have gone to college because that's the way her demeanor and she uh, really was very, uh, she was a very formal person in terms of how she spoke and how she presented herself. But in spite of all that, she was really warm warm and kind. And so you look at education as the as a great liberator. And so I tell young people, because I speak to a lot of young people, and I say, if you want to if you want to be progressive, radical, liberal, whatever you call it, it starts with education. But even though you want to get education, don't be confused that that title is as important as as the knowledge. Because I remember what Malcolm X said. He said, what do you call a black PhD? Pause, pause, pause. Well, you know the answer. And, and we're seeing it now when you have people who are so extremely qualified. Let's, 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 take, let's just even, let's look at the speaker situation in, the, in our U.S. House of Representatives, for instance. I mean, Hakeem Jeffries is so much qualified than any of the people who've been who have been nominated and subsequently were appointed as speaker to and and so it's very interesting and then when you look at education that that black people are at the same level and in most in many institutions I won't say most because I as a researcher I haven't done my due diligence to get all of the research correctly but we have black people, particularly black women, are so well educated for the positions that they have at which they are getting less than two thirds of what the white male is, is getting doing the same job. So education has been a theme of my life. When I quit college to do civil rights work, it almost broke my mother's heart, but she knew that it was that the work I was doing was important. And when I went back to school, I now have four degrees. Those are a testament to my mother's faith and to the fact that she, one, believed in me, believed in education. And it's interesting, uh, our relatives, the nieces and nephews, the next generations, that's what they remember about my mom. When they would ask her a question, she would very kindly say, well, what do you think about it? And look it up. She had this gigantic dictionary. And I think the point size is probably two point. I've kept this all these years. And she would always, people would look it up. And that's how they learned to be inquisitive, to be, to acquire not just information, but knowledge. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I am your host, Kat Brooks. We are in conversation with Janet Duarte Bell about her book, Blackbird Singing Inspirational Black Women's Speeches from the Civil War to the 21st Century. In the beginning of the book, Janet, you talk about one of the reasons you wrote this book is because of the way Black women have historically and 
to many degrees today continue to be locked out of political dialogue and leadership. Can you expand upon that, please? Yes, I'm ha- I'm happy to do that. It's interesting in, that in my introduction, I started with the October 2020 at then vice presidential debate, where then Senator Kamala Harris said to Mike Pence when he was trying to interrupt her doing his mansplaining, uh, I'm speaking, Mr. Vice President. So we've always had to say that. And what's interesting now, if you look at the coverage of uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, they say, well, why isn't she speaking? Why isn't she doing that? They put a different kind of expectation on what she is supposed to be doing. What she's doing is the traditional role and sometimes more than the traditional role of a vice president. She is competent, she is articulate, she is all the things that we should be celebrating if we really want true leadership in this country. But yet there's all this carping about uh, what what she's doing and trying to undermine her image and undermine the power that she has. But thank goodness, she keeps marching forward through that. And so what sometimes we have to say, we have to break through what is a sometimes intentional, sometimes unintentional. When I was working at National Public Radio, we had a wonderful vice president who was a, a stereotypical tall Texan, but stereotypical in terms of physique, but not in terms of progressive values. This white gentleman from Texas was so good. And I, I would, at, when I was at National Public Radio for a year and a half, I was the only woman and the only person of color in program com, uh, meetings, which consisted of about a dozen people. And I would say something and I, I would come up with very good suggestions, I must say, <laughs> and they would be ignored. And so finally, after a couple of these meetings, uh, this vice president, whose name is Joe, uh, said he would start saying, oh, and and I'd finish something. And then some other person, white male, because that's all the that's the only people in the meeting would say the exact same thing I had said a few minutes earlier. And they go, great idea. What vision? How can we do this? And so after a few meetings, Joe started saying, wait a minute started saying, yes, that is so great. And I'm so glad Janet brought that up. So he became a champion for the kind of programming and things that I was able to do at National Public Radio. And I did, and I was able to do a lot of diverse programming because of of some people like that. So I always say is that even though the situation is, you have to you have to break through the wall sometime, but there are people who, if they would only speak up, hello America, if you would only speak up for justice, we can get to where we all need to be and we're all better for it. As I was sitting with this idea, uh, this concept, the history of Black women being locked out of political conversations since forever, um, I also started thinking, you know, because we talk about it a lot in terms of the the role of white men, but we go back, white women as well, I'm thinking about voting rights, um, all, all sorts of political conversations that were happening, 1800s, 1900s, uh, where we were locked out. And if you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, well, they, but many white women have been complicit 
or they either by either actively complicit, such as in the case of um, the woman who accused young Emmett Till of whistling or saying what have you, who recanted a few years ago, right? A little late, but uh, but then if you look at the at the voting patterns, the majority of white women did not vote for Barack Obama, who's probably the best candidate for all people, including white women that we've had in our in our lifetime. I mean, he's just been a remarkable, he was a remarkable president and he met president and he did not get the majority of white women voters. Now they have secret ballots. They don't have to be out there on the picket line like you or me to say, okay, I'm doing, I'm doing this. They can go in and they can vote and they, did not do it. And the silence of uh, white women now really it, it points out to something that my late husband, Derek Bell, wrote about, you know, the interest convergence. And they, when black women were being criticized, and I mean, we have, I have some great, wonderful uh, white friends who, who have been, who have been champions for human rights, which include all of us, such, such as Gloria Steinem, whom I adore, one of, one of my mentors. But other people have been silent. Somehow it was okay that there, that there are two million or more people in prison and a lot and a growing number of black women who are in prison for petty crimes and things like that. We can be silent by that. Okay, and it was okay that black women in terms of health outcomes didn't have the same positive health outcomes as white women. Even Serena Williams had a challenge of telling people in the hospital, you know, my pain is real. And they think for some reason, because we have had to persevere and go through things that we are strong and we can get through all things. As I said to a friend the other day, I said, don't get me started. You know, the, fa <laughs> the father of modern uh, uh, gynecology uh, tested it on black women without painkillers. Can you believe that? any rate, so that's part of that. That's part of that history. But now, so we're saying it's if you control, if you want to control or ignore black women's bodies, you will also want to control, ignore white women's bodies. And so the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court Dobbs decision, taking away the 50 year uh, rights of white women, they were so astounded. And it was a tragedy, it was horrible. But if you look at it, you could see it coming. And you're wondering why people were so, uh, you know, you, you can't be quiet and think, Oh, gee, it's not going to affect me. You know, as Martin Luther King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that's really the that's really part of interest convergence. And that's really part of where we need to take a stand. So black women, again, have to come into the breach and say, OK, we have to protect the rights of our children. We have to protect the rights of of women all of us so we don't have the nor should we want to have the luxury of saying okay we're going to be so isolated that we're only talking about ourselves we can never do that because our lives are inextricably 
tied up with the whole thing and that's just the way it is so when we so when we take positions on human rights on um that those positions really help everyone and so we what we have to do and what i've tried to do with my white sisters i'm involved in a lot of political organizations you 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 may know that or may guess that that is the case and i have told them that people sat on you know they sit out they sit on their wallets when it comes to supporting progressive black women candidates they just did they've done that in the last you just you 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 name the election that's where they've done it but they expect black women not only to support progressive white candidates which we do but to support progressive black candidates male and female which we do at an income level which is far less it's factually it's far less than what white women do what they have tried what they have done is adopted many of the bad habits of white men and so we say you know you have to break away from that you have to stand up and be counted and that's that's really a hard challenge and i think that the and you want to say it lovingly and you want to say it in a way that brings people into the room that doesn't chase them away but the fact is that people need to be uh realistic at what they at number one what their expectations are of black women which we exceed all the time i mean we really do and and i i i was i was looking at um if if you look at the major major cases that are going on around the country in terms of uh protecting our democracy uh many of which grew out of the January 6 insurrection uh who's heading those cases i mean thank you jack smith we like that but then you have i mean i always say in the tradition of the great constance baker motley who was one of derek's mentors with whom he helped integrate the university speaking of education the universities of georgia and the uni- uh, and of mississippi but you have fanny willis i mean people uh she she quietly does her job except when she she had to she had to do that smackdown though when she pointed out that uh, certain people had not passed the bar but anyway i give her i give her that uh letitia james in new york uh judge tanya chutkin you know in dc these folks are part of that tradition of okay we know we have to be good they're well educated and they have the same uh qualities that uh i i wrote about specifically in lighting the fires of freedom but allude to in this in blackbirds and that's authentic authenticity courage and purpose i mean you cannot dissuade us if we are if we are committed to the cause from doing the right thing because we know that there's no turning back that our commitment is not to ourselves our commitment is one of service to the community and our commitment is one to the future for our children and grandchildren mm. You're listening to Lawless Order. I'm your host Kat Brooks in conversation with Janet Dwart Bell who has a new book out Blackbird Singing Inspiring Black Women's Speeches from the Civil War to the 21st Century. 
Janet, let's get into the book. I'm watching. I could talk to you about politics for hours, but that's, that's <laughs> and I can talk about yes, politics yes, for hours. Like so I'm, I'm dangerous. <laughs> there's so many threads that I want to tug on, but I do want to talk a bit about the book. Some of the Please, women yes. in the book that you you lift up are very well known, like Mama Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Angela Davis. Um, I would like to walk through some of the women that maybe the masses aren't as aware of. Um, and I'd like to start with Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. Who was she? Why did you choose her? And what is the message of her speech? We are all bound up together. Yes. So I want I want to go back just for one second sure. and to say, even though some of the women we talk about are their names are relatively well known, the the depths of what they've done is not necessarily well known. True. Like Sojourner Truth. True. You know, p- people do not know that she could not read or write. Right. That she was phenomenal in terms of obviously a brilliant woman and courageous and could do had a, a memory that all of us would be quite proud or glad to have. And so you have her and and I and so what I say and she is she's probably my north star for this book. Uh, the there's the bust of Sojourner Truth which is on the cover of the book because I think that if, if someone who in the Civil War era who had to um, endure all of the things that she had to do in in terms of slavery, post-slavery and 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 you and we were talking about our our white sisters had to push herself into certain settings, and so the culmination of and the and the thing that people talk about and there's a great book by uh, 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 Professor Nell Painter on Sojourner Truth. I, I don't the the myth and the legend, but she she was very well spoken even though she was unlettered, but she was well-educated because she was self-educated. But some of the women whom we haven't, we don't know about as much, such as you mentioned, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. She was a poet, a lecturer, and a civil rights activist. And she addressed the 11th National Women's Rights Convention in New York, where she joined Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and Lucretia Mott. They're among the feature speakers. And she started off by saying, I feel I am something of a novice upon this platform, born of a race whose inheritance has been outrage and wrong. Most of my life has been spent battling against those wrongs. But I did not feel as keenly as others that I had these rights in common with other women, which are now demanded. And then she goes on. It's a a wonderful, wonderful speech where she says, we are all bound up together in one great bundle of humanity and society cannot trample on the weakest and feeblest of its members without receiving the curse in its own soul. That's pretty powerful. Yes, yes, indeed. Thank you for the read from the book. Maybe you'll do that with the next woman I ask you about as well. Um, And I think you've actually, you've lifted her up, but um, Mary Church Terrell, same questions. Who was she? Why did you choose her? And what is the message of her speech solving the colored woman's problem? Yeah, so Mary Church Terrell, who is actually among um, many circles, is 
is relatively well known. She's not uh, the 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 last person with whom we just spoke. Miss Harper, you know, is is I frankly I'm embarrassed. I didn't know who she was until I started doing this book. The same with Mary Ann Shad Carey, who wrote Break Every Yoke and Let the Oppressed Go Free. But Mary Church Terrell, and maybe I should give the years so that people know she was born. Uh, she was born 1863, and she lived to the middle of the 20th century, 1954. She envisioned that black success would further racial progress. Uh, she was an educator and leader for equality for women and black people. And I might say for all people, her call to action was lifting as we climb. That was the motto of the National Association of Colored Women, a group she co-founded in 1896 and for which she served as president. She was also a co-founder of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. And she worked for uh, uh, racial integration. And even in her 90s, she worked to help desegregate the restaurants and lunch counters in Washington, D.C. But the, her theme, Lifting As We Climb, really became a theme of the Black Women's Club movement. Black women were so amazing without anything but faith and courage and support of each other they built a foundation which became uh which which grew into the various freedom movements we see in the in the 20th century absolutely amazing work but lifting as we climb they did not get um they they were not um seduced by this notion that there are only few of us who can who are worthy to associate in white society back 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 in the day as they say they used to say to black women uh, or black people who were either educated or who had some skill or something like that they say you're a credit to your race uh-huh my, my mom's attitude well are you a credit to yours <laughs> and so it's that if you and if you deconstruct what that comment is it's like you are trying to separate black people from each other and what the strength and of the of the black movement the, the black led human rights civil rights or as my friend ruby nell sales says freedom movement she says we didn't sing civil rights songs we sang freedom songs but if you dis if you deconstruct that statement it's like we don't want to be separated we need community to build to build up for everybody for all of us so we start with the black community we we cannot afford to allow people to separate us and that's what people have done i mean i even and we are acculturated right so we have to we have to remember that we have to check we as black people have to check ourselves as well that we don't fall into this um, trap where we think, oh, well, public schools are so terrible. You know, we have to send our children to private schools. And when we see black people on the street, we have to cross the street, all that kind of stuff. You know, black men on the street, we have to cross. That is part of what is the attempted acculturation of black society in America. And we have to say, no, 
we're not doing that. And so the, these women, the women in this book and Enlightened Powers of Freedom did not fall for what we used to call the okie doke. They knew that what we have to do is have a commitment for lifting up the, the race. All right. I've asked you about two of the women that I wanted uh, to learn more about. Um, if, if one, one more woman, I'm going to ask you to choose. Who would you like to lift up? There's so many, but I think I would like to lift up Polly Murray. And let me see. Polly, Polly Murray has become better known in, in some circles because she became the first, I think, African-American woman Episcopal priest. But what people don't know about Polly Murray is that she was also, she was a great intellectual. She went to Howard University and she is considered by a number of people to help be, help uh, as an architect for civil rights movement and civil rights legislation. She's also lifted up by uh, LGBTQ because she, she changed her name to Polly from, uh, because she, she actually wanted to be called Paul because of her, her, her personal gender identity. But that was, that was in the forties and people were like, they were not having that. So she, she became Polly. But she was a great attorney, great strategist, and she her she was bound by, as so many of these women, by their religious faith and their hope for they all the thing that's so remarkable to me, and when I sometimes get down, and you know we all we do, because you we we if you're active and you read the news and your and your heart bleeds for uh people who uh, you know, are being mistreated, whether they are immigrate, you know, uh, immigrants, refugees coming to this shore, whether they're people being bombed in Israel or Gaza. You know, your heart bleeds. You, 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 if you're human, you have to have some compassion and empathy for that. But what I found with the women, and it's just a few, I tell people, this is only... This is only a small slice of all these fabulous people. But if you read this, you are inspired because if they, they didn't give up, not only didn't they give up, they marched forward with hope and courage and vision. And they're so excited. And Polly Murray, who really uh, helped represent that, was just is just an extraordinary person and there are a couple of books about her specifically one called Jane Crow which I will recommend to people if you want to know more about Polly Murray and then there are others whose names I, I just if I have if we have a moment I just like to mention their names because even though the names may be familiar what I say is don't just do the headline news dig in to see what else you can learn about them. And you can learn a lot about them from their speeches because their speeches help crystallize their philosophy, but their speeches are so inspiring. And they gave them, they weren't being paid big bucks, if any bucks at all, to give them. And they proceeded to want to contribute to liberation. And they did it in the selfless way of servant leadership 
that's what they did. So those names that I want people to, you, you think you know who they are, but please read more about Fannie Lou Hamer. I love Mrs. Hamer. And uh, Shirley Chisholm, we don't have time to talk about. Um, and, and they're just so, oh, and of course, Ella Baker. But the one person who, in, in many anthologies, for some reason, I think, does not get enough um, attention is the great poet Gwendolyn Brooks. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm part of my metaphors that I use is about singing and Blackbird singing, of course, was inspired by um, a song by Sir Paul McCartney. And, uh, but uh, Gwendolyn Brooks wrote a poem, Speech to the Young, and her, the, and in it she says, live not for battles won, Live not for the end of the song. Live in the along. Mm, thank you so much for that. Janet Duarte Bell, Malcolm X, or rather Elhaj Malik Shabazz, said on May 22nd, 1962, that, quote, the most disrespected person in America is the black woman. The most unprotected person in America is the black woman. The most neglected person in America is the black woman. Still true. Yes, and so we're we're going we're breaking we're breaking through that. But you know what's really what's encouraging is when I I, I speak a lot and and the uh, to to groups I, I do a lot of intergenerational leadership, of course, and uh, the younger people are so excited to know these stories and to know that they're people who even though they never knew them that these were these were people unborn when they were when they were living and and trying to make a better world but in but the love that they have for these children for our generation for our future is just palpable even now and that's exciting i'm just i'm just i just feel so honored and grateful to be able to do this work well, we're grateful you did it. I'm actually, now that we've completed our interview, I'm actually going to pass this on to my daughter, who is a freshman in college, um, just as affirmation of who she is um, as uh, an emerging Black woman into this world. All right. Anything that you would like to say, final words that I haven't asked you before we close out and say goodbye? That when the book when i started this book it was really a suggestion of the executive editor of the of the new press who suggested that gee speeches would be okay would be it's, it maybe it was this time this was a few years before covid and i thought gee well i'm in and then once i began the research i realized number one what great fertile ground it was and i realized that not just don't just take contemporary speeches but that a long view was important to illustrate, underscore the vision, the courage, the brilliance, the prophecy of black women who had few models and little resources, if any at all, but through their fierce intellect and amazing dedication to the struggle for freedom, for liberation, created roads by walking. 
wonderful words to end on. You all have been listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest this morning has been Janet Duarte Bell, a social justice activist with a doctorate in leadership and change from Antioch University. She's the author of Lighting the Fires of Freedom and the co-editor of a collection based on the Derrick Bell Lecture Series, which she founded at NYU School of Law to honor her late husband, an award-winning television and radio producer. She lives in New York City. Her book that we've been discussing today is Blackbird Singing, Inspirational Black Women's Speeches from Civil War to the 21st Century. Janet Duarte Bell, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so pleased. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.